The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. I want you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians for just one second. We're going to look at Luke, Luke 21, but I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians for just a moment. In 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, this is one of his earliest letters, and he's writing to these Christians at Thessalonica. And so he writes to them, and he's talking about the effect of their testimony, about what people have discovered when they have heard about the gospel coming to Thessalonica. And Paul says, as he opens the letter up, he talks about how much he prays for them. And he said, every time I remember your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope, I pray for you and give thanks for you. Work of faith, your work produced by faith, your labor that is working to the point of exhaustion produced by love, and your endurance that is ability to stay under pressure, go through difficult times, and trusting and loving Christ that's produced by hope. And this is what hope is. In fact, later on in this first chapter, one thing I wanted to point out to you that he gives the marks of uh, their conversion this way. He says, down in verses 9 of First Thessalonians 1, he says, but they, they themselves, he's talking about people who've given him reports about how they heard the gospel, went to Thessalonica, and people were saved. And he said, they themselves report about uh, to us about what kind of reception we had with you. And this, he mentions three things. First of all, the transformation of life, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And then he talks about a vision of the, the, well, a vision of the task. They turn to serve God. And the third thing is their expectation of the Lord and to wait or to literally uh, anticipate, wait up. The word here means to look up and to expect. You ever do that when your kids were teenagers, when you waited up for them? You remember that? I remember that. You wait up, you're you're concerned. Are they going to get home? Are they going to... Are they going to arrive? And so you wait up for them. And that's what this word is, to wait up. It means the idea of anxiety, not not in a negative sense, but in a positive sense. You're anxious for Jesus to come. That is the basis of our hope. Jesus said he was coming back. And so we live in expectation of his return. And because of that expectation, we have hope because he's promised to come back. And that's all hope is. Hope is believing. In fact, it's defined for us in the book of Colossians. It's an earnest expectation that God will fulfill his promises about the future. What are you looking to him for? Well, the Bible says he's returning and he is going to deliver us. That's what that passage in Isaiah 62 is about. God affirming his commitment to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem would be a very tough place for you to live today. And it's been that way since 70 AD because God poured out his judgment on Jerusalem even though it's this city that has a special place in his heart and he's promised to raise it up again and reestablish it. And that doesn't come through the presidents deciding it's the capital of Israel. That's not going to do it. There's got to be something supernatural take place. And that's going to happen when Jesus returns. Well, if you look back at uh, look back at Luke chapter 21, what you have here, let me just show you on this overhead. First of all, there's a shocking prophecy given here, but it's a result of them looking at, he's, in, he's at the temple, and his, some of these disciples are looking at the temple, and they are amazed at it. I mean, it's, it's really a wonder. It was really a wonder. And they were looking at it, and it says, well, some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones. Some of these stones were absolutely, you wonder how they tore it down. 
these, some of these stones were 10 feet long, four feet high. And so they're looking at it and they're adoring it and all the votive gifts like things like people gave uh, golden grapevines to hang on the walls, for example. Uh, And he says, and Jesus says this in response to their admiring the temple. He says, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. Now that's got to be a shock to their system. There's coming a day when this is going to be torn down. And that happened in 70 A.D. Paul, uh, Jesus is speaking these words in about 33 A.D. So less than 40 years in the future... The temple is going to be completely destroyed along with the whole city. When this took place in 70 AD, the Jews were driven off the land. They were not allowed by the Romans to even come back to the city except for special occasions when they allowed them to. So Israel's cast off the promised land by the Romans. Titus brings an army to, to Jerusalem and destroys the city. And this is what Jesus is prophesying about. And then notice these, these two questions that they ask him when he says, it's all going to be torn down. They ask him these two questions. Teacher, when, theref- when therefore will these things happen? When is it going to take place? That's what we want to know, isn't it? When? Well, we know when the temple was torn down, but they ask another question. And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place or they begin to take place? And what they're asking really is, what are the signs of your coming? In fact, over in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 24, sometimes called the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is telling them what the future holds, and it's because they ask him this, this, these questions, same questions, but notice what they add. When will these things happen? That is the destruction of the temple. And it's going to happen in 70 A.D. And the second question they ask is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's been almost 2,000 years. It's 2018 right now, so probably in another 10 years will be 2,000 years since Jesus gave them the answer that we find in our text today. And then he gives, he gives them two answers in the text, in, in Luke 21. This is what Luke 21 is about. Jesus is answering these two questions. The first question is about when is, Israel, when is Jerusalem going to be destroyed? And so he answers that in these first, it's verses 8 through 24, he's going to answer that question. When is it going to be destroyed? He answers the second question a little later in this chapter, in verses 25 through 28, when he answers... What are the signs of his coming? When is Jesus coming back? Now, there have been a lot of books written about when Jesus is coming back. A lot of dates have been given and passed, and they didn't come back. You should have, when you bought that book that said he was coming back in 1984, you should have got your money back from the publisher, don't you think? You didn't buy it? There's always going to be somebody telling us when Jesus is coming back. But this is, we want to see what Jesus himself says. So first of all, we're going to look at the answer to the first question. This is in verses 8 through 24. Listen to what he says. This is uh, Luke chapter 21, verse 8. And he said, see to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am. Now, in your text, it probably says, I am he, but in the Greek, it simply says, I am. Every time Jesus said, I am he, it it will translate it that way in your translations. He's actually saying, I am. Now, whose name is that? That's God's name, right? And so that's why they wanted to stone him, because he claimed to be God. 
And he says, there are going to be men who come after me who are going to say, I am, and they're going to say, the time is near. So what are you supposed to do? This is what you're supposed to do. Do not go after them. Don't buy the book. Don't become a part of the movement. It's not true. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Verse 10, then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. These are images that are familiar to the Jews because they're they're images that were in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel all use this kind of wording about what's going to take place before the Messiah comes the second time. In verse 10, then he continues to say to them, nation is going to rise against nation. There's going to be wars and so forth. In verse 11, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So what are you supposed to do? Well, listen to this. But he says, but before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. That is his disciples, his followers. They're going to lay their hands on the disciples. And, you will, and they will persecute you. All you got to do is read the book of Acts to see this fulfilled. People laid their hands on them, arrested them, took them before the synagogue leaders, beat them, threw them in jail. It's all right there in the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. He says, they're going to be delivering you to the synagogue and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake, just because you're followers of me. In fact, they're going to be affected all over the known world because they have believed on Jesus. He says it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. You know, if you get arrested next week and you're brought before a judge because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what that is? That's an opportunity to give your testimony. That's what Jesus said. (laughs) It's an opportunity for you to give your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. Don't prepare beforehand. That's what he says. He says, because I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to refute or resist. That's exactly what we see in the New Testament, is they had answers to the questions that they were confronted about. They gave answers that confounded the crowds. And he says in verse 16, but you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. When people come to faith in Christ, sometimes their friends abandon them and their family turns against them. We've all heard the stories about Jewish people when they become Christians and and their families disown them. The same thing happens in almost every culture. Go talk to some Chinese Christians and what happens to them in relationship to their families and friends. And it happens all over the world. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Because they are followers of Jesus. Verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. Now he just talked about their death, so he's obviously not talking about physical protection in the sense that they'll never suffer any pain. But he's talking about your eternal safety. God is not going to allow anything to separate you from the God that you have believed in, the, the Christ that you have believed in. He says in verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. If you've, if you've never read like Josephus on the account of this siege of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus and the Roman army, it's an amazing event. 
totally destroys the city and casts all the Jews out. They could never come back into Jerusalem after that until much, much later. But even today, guess who's controlling Jerusalem? It's a split city, and the Jews don't have full control of Jerusalem. And in fact, the president saying that, that Jerusalem is their, is their capital doesn't change a thing on the ground there. Because the Palestinians control the, the western part of the city of Jerusalem, and they continue to control it. And this is what he prophesied would happen. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. This is the initial siege of Jerusalem. And he tells them to, they have to flee to the mountains. This is what is, we're told in the prophets as well. This is a, a common uh, prophecy concerning the people of, of Israel that they're going to have to run for it. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies. These were the blessed ones. We always count new mothers to be blessed in a special way. But he says they're going to have to flee in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Get this. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. It's going to be fulfilled in the future. And so he says it's going to be in this condition until this time. Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. Now, it had once taken place before, back in Zechariah. It uses the same language. So now the times of the Gentiles have come in, and the Gentiles are controlling Jerusalem, the holy city. What you heard read this morning in Isaiah 62 was about God's love for Jerusalem. It was a gift to his people. He gave them the land and the city. But now we are in the times of the Gentiles, in two senses, in fact. In fact, I want you to turn with me for just a second back uh, to or forward to Acts chapter 11, if you would, for just one minute. Acts 11. Now remember the chronology of things. The gospel, Jesus comes, he was rejected by his people. He came into his own creation and his own people rejected him. And so he was crucified. He was handed over to the Gentiles and they crucified him because the Jews, the Jewish leadership insisted upon it. But, and so after the resurrection of Christ, a number of Jews believed in Jesus being their Messiah, that he had been raised from the dead. Not all of them, a small number of them. Uh, 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 just a small percentage of the people believed on Jesus, of these Jewish people who became Christian Jews. They believed on Christ. And then notice in chapter 11 of Acts, verse 19, so then those who were scattered, these are talking about Jews who have been persecuted because they claim that Jesus was the Messiah. And the main persecutor was the Apostle Paul before he became the Apostle Paul. When he was Saul, he hated Christians because he did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he did everything he could to destroy them. And it says, so then those who were scattered because of persecution 
because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. At first, they only talked to Jews about Jesus being the Messiah. He was a Jewish Messiah. And so they wanted to spread the words to other Jews outside of Jerusalem. He says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus, they don't even tell us their names, men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks, that is to the Gentiles, also preaching the Lord Jesus. You got got to realize how absolutely revolutionary this was. For these Jewish followers of Jesus to begin to speak to Gentiles, who the Jews, the very name Gentile meant sinners. They were far from God. They had no place in a relationship with God. And so some of them go to the, the, the Greeks and they begin preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says, and the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number believed and turned to the Lord. Hear that? The gospel goes to the Gentiles. This is the first time the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The gospel, including the the good news that Jesus, who was the Messiah of Israel, has been raised from the dead. Though he was rejected by his people and crucified by the Romans and put in a tomb, he's been raised from the dead. And it says, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch to check this out. And you remember the story goes on in this chapter. He went and got Saul, Paul, who had come to faith in Christ by this time, and he takes him with him to Antioch to see what's going on. Gentiles believing on Jesus. And so this is at the very beginning. It has not yet become obvious to them that the times of the Gentiles has set in. That the Gentiles, because Jerusalem hasn't yet been destroyed. But once, once Jerusalem is destroyed and the times of the Gentiles have set in, all the Jews are driven out of Jerusalem. This was in 70 A.D., Now look with me at Romans chapter 11 for just a second. Romans chapter 11. If you're not a Baptist, I'm sorry. All you Baptists can find the book of Romans, I'm sure. That's what I've been told by Baptists. Uh, Romans chapter 11. Look at verses 12 through 15. Notice what it says. Now if their transgression, he's talking about the Jews. The Apostle Paul is in a section here beginning in chapter 9, which he as a Jew who has been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, is concerned about his own countrymen. And so he says here, now if their transgression, that is the Jews rejecting Christ, is riches for the world, how is that? Because they rejected their Messiah, the gospel went out to the Gentiles. You're a Gentile. And I'm a Gentile. And the gospel came to us because the Jews rejected him. And they drove out all the Christians. And so the Christians are scattered and they begin, these Christian Jews are scattered. And finally they begin to tell Gentiles that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul says, if the transgression, if their transgression, that is their disobedience to God and not believing and receiving Christ is riches for the world, that is the gospel goes all the way to Knights in California. He says their, few, their failure is riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their, will their fulfillment be when they turn back to Christ? When, the, when these people, these Jewish people, turn to Christ in the future, he says, what is, what is it going to be? And then he explains, he says, I'm speaking to you as, who are Gentiles, and as much 
then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, do you understand that language? The rejection of the, when the Jews rejected their Messiah, it ended up causing the reconciliation of the world because the gospel went out. The gospel is going out all over the world. There are two and a half billion people who claim to be followers of Christ today. Now think of that. And here there was, there was a handful of Jews who received him. And because of the persecution that drove them out, they began to tell Gentiles about Jesus, the rejected Messiah who had been crucified and raised from the dead. He says, well, what will be their acceptance? But life from the dead. It's going to be like a resurrection. What's he talking about? He's talking about the future. That, you know, this is an amazing thing. There are, there are groups that are called um, preterists. Uh, within Christianity, and they believe that this was the second coming, the destruction of Jerusalem. And all prophecy has been fulfilled. There's no future prophecy. But that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that God is going to turn back to his people and call them to himself. When the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled, which means when the last Gentile that God is going to save is saved, then something climactic is going to happen, and the gospel is going to go through the very word of Christ to the people of Israel, the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, and they're going to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be this great gathering in of a people. Look at verse 25. For I do not, I, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will, not, you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. What's partial? It means it's, it's not permanent. It's temporary. There's a temporary hardening of the hearts. For example, if you ever want to see some testimonies of Jews who've come to faith in Christ in our day today, you can go on YouTube. There's a, there's a YouTube channel called um, one, one for Israel and another one called I Met the Messiah. You can go in there and watch these testimonies of Jews who have turned to Christ in faith because the gospel came to them and they believed it. And they have received Jesus as their Messiah and Savior and Lord. And they're a part of the church now too. But there's coming a future day in which there's going to be this great, great turning of Israel to Christ. They're going to believe upon him. And so in verse 25 when he says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Don't think you know more than you really do. He says that this is just a partial hardening has happened to Israel. It's a temporary thing. God's love for Jerusalem and his love for his people is going to be fulfilled in his turning their hearts towards him. Now, there are people that believe that Israel has sinned away their, their day of grace, and they'll no, no longer will they ever have a relationship with God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Let me just show you one other place, since you, you're good at finding books. Look back at Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the second major prophet, Jeremiah chapter 31. Turn there for just a second. In Jeremiah 31, let's look down at verse 31. In Isaiah 31, verse 31, listen to this. Behold, days are coming. This is Jeremiah prophesying about 700 years before, over 700 years before the coming of Christ. 
And this is what he says. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That is the Mosaic covenant, which he made with them at Mount Sinai. He says, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, they were unfaithful. And they came under judgment. But he says, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. He's going to change their hearts. And they're going to turn to him in faith. And he says, I'm going to write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now he goes on, I won't read it, but he goes on to say, look, if you can change the season, if you can change the rotation of the earth around the sun, then, I, then you can say, I'm not going to be faithful to my promises. But if the universe continues on as it is, then you can know for sure, I'm going to be faithful to my people. Now that should be good news to us, because I know some of you here probably have been unfaithful to the Lord at different times. And he didn't disown you, did he? He didn't write you off. He didn't cast you away. He worked in your heart and brought you back to him in repentance and faith. And this is what he's going to do with the nation of Israel. He's going to turn their hearts to him. And so we're going to see a day when not only is Jesus coming back and we're going to see him face to face, but he's going to call the people that have turned their backs on him for all these centuries and he's going to bring them back to him. And they're going to put their faith and trust in him. Now, he started doing that already today and with individuals, but he's going to do it as a group in the future. So the times of the Gentiles began at the destruction of Jerusalem. Two things are going on here, as you saw in these passages we read. First of all, Jerusalem is going to be controlled by Gentiles until Jesus comes back. But secondly, the gospel is going out to Gentiles primarily. I had a student at Grace School of Theology years ago who decided he wanted to go to Israel and witness, preach the gospel. He, got, he didn't get any, he didn't prepare beforehand like finding out if it was legal to do that. He gets on an airplane and flies to Jerusalem. He gets off the plane and they simply ask him, what's the purpose of your visit? He said to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They said, you're not going to stay. You can't stay. And they put him back on an airplane and sent him back to America. Because it wasn't legal to do that. Now, there are Christians preaching the gospel there today. But one of these days, they're going to look on him whom they pierced. And they're going to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So during this period of time, the days of the Gentiles, as they go on, we await the coming of Christ. And the second question that he asked about what is the sign of your coming The answer to that is found in in verses 25 through 28. Look there, please, in Luke chapter 21. Turn back to Luke 21. He says, this is what Jesus says, There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men feigning from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. It's going to be a scary time. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing nigh. 
Now, what he's talking about, your redemption here, he's talking about the great deliverance that's coming for us in the future when Christ returns. In Romans 11, or, or, no, not Romans 11. In Romans 8, Paul says, when Christ comes back, we are going to experience the future tense of adoption. We're going to, we're going to, we're, the, the, the wonderful work of adoption is going to be completed in our lives. We're going to be given a new body, the redemption of our bodies. We're going to have a body that's fit for the presence of God. One of the hopes we have, this is according to Romans chapter 5, we, we exult in the hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? We exult in the hope that we're going to be so changed by the work of Christ that we're going to be able to stand in the very presence of God in all of his glory. That's an amazing promise. And he says that promise is going to be fulfilled in chapter, in chapter 8. That promise is going to be fulfilled when we receive our new body. Our bodies are going to be transformed. You're going to receive, your body's going to be transformed. Somebody just patted their belly. And, uh, <laughs> and you're going to be able to live in the presence of God. Isn't that something? You'll be able to look upon him. In fact, the Bible says that he's coming back to earth. You read the last chapter of the book of Revelation. He's coming back to live on this earth, this renewed earth. And we're going to live in his very presence. That's the hope of glory. So we exult in the hope of glory that, that Christ is coming back and he's going to not only turn his people's hearts to him, that is the nation of Israel, but he's going to finish his work in all of us Gentiles who have believed upon him. It's a wonderful thing, a wonderful expectation we have. Then he gives this parable down in, in verse 29. Um, in fact, this is, the, this is the last section where he gives this clarifying parable. Remember, he always gives a parable to illustrate and to clarify what he has been teaching. And so he gives this parable. This is what he said. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, in fact, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know something. If you've been paying attention, you know for yourselves that summer is now near because the trees are beginning to leave. They're, they're beginning to develop leaves. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. When you begin to see these things that he says are going to accompany a second coming. Now we're seeing wars and rumors of war and all those things now, but these, aren't the, these are not the signs at the very end. These are the signs that we see throughout this age. But when these things begin to take place, when Jerusalem was destroyed, we should look up because our redemption draws nigh. Christ is coming back. We have this glorious hope. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, as well as in the book of Jude, it tells us one of the things that ought to characterize us as Christians is that we ought to share with, with one another in our conversations, our interaction with each other, the joy that Jesus is coming back. You know how it is when we get to talking and people begin to share with you what horrible things going on in their life? Have you ever said, isn't it good news that Jesus is coming back? He's going to make all, thing right, all things right. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Christ is returning. He's coming back, and we live in anticipation of his return. And so he says in verse 34, Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, those things that people turn to to get peace in times when there is no peace in their hearts. 
dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. In other words, if I turn to other things to ease my mind and my anxiety, guess what's going to happen? These things are going to come on me like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The Son of Man is his title that's given to him in in Daniel 7 of having total, complete authority over all of his creation. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and upon earth. And so we, we wait for his day. So now during the day, it says he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount of, of the, that is called Olivet. He's connecting this with what we saw in Matthew 24. All of this teaching that he gives about his second coming. And it says all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him teach. So he says this generation probably refers to when he says back in verse 32, this generation will not perish all these things have taken place. He he could be talking about those people that were alive at this time that saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Or he may be talking about the way that Luke uses this generation over and over again is talking about this unbelieving generation, this generation who do not receive Christ, do not believe on Christ. They're going to be around in the last days as well. So Jesus is calling them to be on guard. He calls his disciples to be faithful and alert, to be alert and sober for the purpose of prayers because Christ is coming. And you know, we ought to celebrate this all the time when we talk to each other because it's good news. Isn't it amazing how much bad news there is? It's just amazing when you talk to, to people, you hear the most wretched things that's going on in the world and what's taking place. And yet we are to be, we are to set our eyes upon him because he's coming back. And we look for the day when he comes to complete uh, this work of salvation. He's going to, by his life, that is, this resurrected one is going to come into the world to bring deliverance to us. And we're going to be brought into the very presence of the living God and the king of glory. And so we, we ought to have this mentality, this hope that we have is based upon the promises that God has given to us. Hope is a part of the Christian life. It's just faith exercised towards what God has promised the future holds. That's what hope is. It's me having, it's, it's the result of me believing God's promises about the future. Have you ever met hopeless people? Ever met a person that just seems to be that they're totally hopeless? They see nothing good in their future at all. Deep depression. You know the cure for that? It's hope. And you know how you get hope? You believe the promises of God about the future. You know how you do that? You actually find out what they are. You discover what his promises are. And this one that you have trusted in the past, you can trust him to fulfill his promises to you in the future. And so we could all 
be characterized by what Paul says the Thessalonians were. That their endurance was produced by hope. Endurance means they kept on serving Christ and loving Christ and being faithful to Christ even when it was very hard. Because you know about the Thessalonians. They were persecuted horribly. They experienced persecution from day one in the Christian life. And yet what happened to them was they believed the promises of Christ. In fact, there's something really strange about First and Second Thessalonians. These people were so convinced that Jesus was coming back, they thought he was coming back during their lifetime. Now, you ought to be that way a lot more than they were because we're living in 2018. We're a lot closer to the second coming of Christ than the Thessalonians were. And he's promised to come back. And we believe that his second coming is imminent in the sense that there's nothing. We're not waiting for something else to happen in order to know that Christ is returning. Christ is coming back. And we ought to live in anticipation of his second coming. And we ought to encourage one another with that promise that he's given us, that he's returning. Let me close with this, uh, something that I've mentioned 150 times. Uh, is in Jude chapter, it's, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, but I want you to look at it again the 100th time. Turn over to Jude, the last book before Revelation. In Jude, what Jude is telling, Jude, you know, is the bro- half-brother of Jesus. He's the son of Mary. And he's the half-brother of Jesus. He didn't begin to believe on Christ until after Christ's resurrection. But in Jude, verse 20, it says, these are the ones, well, let me get verse, verse 20. But you, beloved, in comparison to those who don't believe, you, brothers, who are followers of Christ, you yourself, yourselves, build yourselves, be building one another up. That's quite literally what it says. Be building one another up on your most holy faith. Be building one another up in your most holy faith. In other words, you, what God wants you to do is get to the place where you can, you can discern when a believer is deficient in what they believe because of the way that they are responding to life. And so what do you do? You build them up in their faith. You, you tell them, look, you don't have to be afraid of that because this is what has taken place. This is what God has promised. You can rely upon him. So he says, be building one another up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Praying in the power of the Spirit. That the Spirit of God would empower you to pray together. He's talking about praying together. To pray together in the power of the Spirit. And then he says, by doing this, you are keeping yourselves in the love of God. And the last thing he says is, waiting anxiously or in great anticipation. For the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. He's talking there about the second coming of Christ. That we ought to be characterized. Yeah, people ought to think we're, we're pretty dim-witted. We believe Jesus is coming back. We believe Christ is returning. And it could be this week. It could be this month. It could be this year. We don't know when it is, but he's coming back. And we ought to live in anticipation and be encouraging each other with that good news about the future. That's good news. And no matter what kind of bad news you got, this is still good news. Because it's the new, it, this is the good news that trumps all the bad news that you're believing. When you watch the news on TV, what do you see? You see horrible things, don't you? Wretched things happening in this world. Well, what, is, what does Jesus say? Look up. Your redemption draws nigh. Jesus is coming back. 
So before the sun goes down today, talk to somebody. I don't care if it's your spouse or who it is, but talk to some believer and remind them of the hope that we have in Christ. We have a blessed hope. You know what that means with a blessed hope? The word blessed means happy. It's the hope that makes you happy. It's a hope that lifts your spirit. Now, I got to admit to you, looking at your faces right now, it's like Phil Howard says, looks like the frontage, the front, front page on Lamentations. You don't look all that excited about the coming of Christ, but let me tell you, it's a glorious truth that we can rejoice in, that Jesus is returning. He's coming back. Let me give him thanks. Father, thank you so much for your promises to us. We thank you, Father, that we still await these future events when the days of the Gentiles have come, come to a conclusion and you turn back to your people, you send your son back into the world. We look forward to that day. We look forward to the time when we will see you. For the, we look forward to the time we're going to be in your presence, to live in your presence in the new Jerusalem. So we pray that we would be encouragement to one another. Thank you, Father, for the blessed hope that we have, the hope that fills our hearts with happiness and joy. We are so grateful, and we ask you to cause that, that good hope to sink deep into our hearts today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.